Welcome to the Creative Conversations. In today's world of increasing intolerance, sometimes honest conversation between us is the only way forward. Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism, is an initiative of the Sweden-based nonprofit organization Stories for Society, which engages in transformational storytelling. The purpose of this initiative is to give rise to a force for peace by building a global network of established authors whose life stories, work, and commitments demonstrate and engage the impact of intolerance, extremism, and war. It is through the arts and our practice of rigorous and honest conversation that we can make a difference. This series records conversations between creatives for this purpose. Welcome everyone. It's wonderful to be here with Carl Rossner and uh, your daughter Elizabeth Rossner speaking together with me, Julie Lindahl, between New York and Stockholm about Carl's story, Elizabeth's story as well, their family's story. Elizabeth, maybe you'd like to read the first paragraph from Survivor Cafe, your book uh, in which you deal with the legacy of your family as a, the briefest of introductions to our conversation. Thank you, Julie. And this is from page one of the introduction to Survivor Cafe. The subtitle of the book is The Legacy of Trauma and the Labyrinth of Memory. Both of my parents survived the Holocaust. The bare bones version of their story goes like this. Spared for a while from numerous deportations and after managing to live through the Allied bombing of Hamburg in 1943, my father, from age 15 to 16, was imprisoned in Buchenwald concentration camp. My mother was a 13-year-old hiding on a farm in the Polish countryside after escaping from the liquidation of the Vilna ghetto. They met after the war was over as refugees in Sweden. They married in Israel and immigrated together to the United States. By the time I was born, on the last day of the 1950s, my parents were living in their first purchased home in Schenectady, New York, on a street called Van Rensselaer Drive. Thanks so much. Carl, can you tell us where you are now and how you got there? Yes, uh, right now I'm in Schenectady County, New York, where I've been living for a while because I was in college in New Jersey when I came to the United States to get a United States degree in electrical engineering and then was hired by the GE Research Laboratory and moved to Schenectady. And that's where the children were born in both Schenectady and Albany. And that's where we lived for quite a while. And still today, we are living again in Schenectady. You both um, didn't start life there. At least your life started far away across the Atlantic in Hamburg in 1929. Can you describe some of your earliest memories of life in Hamburg? Yes, my life was really not very normal or stable 
My first memory is that I lived with my parents in Hamburg in an apartment, but then I don't remember very much except that my youngest brother was born while we lived in this apartment. And then I don't remember the details of what happened after that, except that my parents were divorced. My next memory was that my mother tried to take care of the three of us by herself, and she had great difficulties doing that. And she tried to take us to Paris, where two of her brothers had emigrated to, and she thought they would be able to help help her take care of us and take care of her. Can But I interrupt for one second? Yes, so sure. you keep saying the three of us, and, and what you mean is you were the oldest of three boys, right? So there was you, Karl Heinz, there was Wolfgang, your next brother, and Helmut was the third child. Yes, my father left her and the three of us and did not give her any support. So that's why she went to Paris and thought she might be able to help her uh, in taking care of us and taking care of her. And apparently that was not possible. So she decided to go back to, to Germany. I wanted to go back to the question of whether your mother's decision to take you and your brothers to Paris was at all motivated by what was going on in Germany during the 1930s. Well, it was partly that, but partly also be because her two brothers had left Germany because of that reason, and she thought they could help her escape from Germany and help her and uh, her three sons. Can I add something, though, as well, that you have mentioned to me in the past, where you've said that sometimes you've imagined that it's possible even the divorce was, was somehow caused directly or indirectly by the Nazis' rise to power because my mother's family had a store that they were forced to sell because, of course, it was a Jewish-owned business and the Nuremberg Laws prevented Jews from owning businesses at that point. So they left for Palestine in 1933 as soon as Hitler came to power. And I think you've mentioned, Dad, that you think that the marriage itself might have suffered as a result of economic issues that might have made their difficult marriage even more difficult. Yeah, I obviously was very young. I was uh, less than 10 years old. I really didn't understand what was going on or... But she had no, you know, she had no means of support either right. from her now divorced husband or from her family business. And so she was, she was really in a bind. And so, of course, the circumstances in Germany were really part of her, her reason for leaving and trying to go to Paris. So then she moved you back to Hamburg, is that right? First to Cologne, where her sister and husband and family lived. I think I must have been around six or seven, probably six years old to start school in Cologne first. And I, I still remembered when you started school, 
you got a, a big container of candy to start school as a first year old. How long did you stay in Cologne? I, I don't know how long, but my uh, grandson in uh, Israel may know that. And then my mother moved us back to Hamburg, and she thought she could more reasonably live live in Hamburg again. But then she tried to get us into families to take care of us, but that didn't work out. So then she, she placed us into a Jewish orphanage. She tried to place you in families because of economic need or for other reasons? Well, I think economically because she couldn't take care of us. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she she tried that, but that didn't work out either. So mm-hmm. then she placed us into uh, the Jewish uh, orphanage. And of course, her ability to support you, her chances to support you were reduced all the time as time was progressing during the 30s because of the persecution of Jews and the confiscation of their businesses and and so on, right? Right. The youngest brother, Eli, got into a girl's orphanage. They had boys' orphanages that my brother Wolfie and I went to. You were young enough you were placed in a girls' orphanage, and that's where he went. And that was lucky in that he was young enough then to be taken on a children's transport to Sweden. And my brother and I stayed in the boys' orphanage, Jewish orphanage in Hamburg. That must have been 38 or 39. Yeah, I don't know exactly which year it was, but one of those years it must have been. The way I've always heard that part of the story is that um, even though the the predominant kinder transports were to England, there was a much smaller group of children that were that were taken by Sweden and by the Jewish community in Stockholm in particular, I think, and that my grandmother Rachel felt that if she could get herself also to Sweden, not only to be closest to her youngest child, but also she had the impression, I guess, that the Jewish community would help her retrieve her other two boys as well, that that my father and Wolfi weren't young enough for the kinder transport, or there was some reason that they weren't on kinder transport, but that Eli was, Helmut was, and right. she thought she would have more... Um, more of an ability to help them from outside Germany at this point. Mm-hmm. And Carl, were were you, do you remember being aware that your youngest brother had left for Sweden? Yes, I think I was aware of that from the, uh, because the uh, girls' orphanage wasn't very far away, maybe uh, half or, th- or half a mile or a mile from the boys' orphanage, so we were aware that he had left for Sweden. Do you remember? How did you and Wolfie react to that? What did you think? And did you know that your mother was probably following him, or you had no idea? Well, we didn't know that she had planned to do that, but eventually we found out that she did do that, and uh, because we were in male contact with her. 
So, uh, and she made contact with uh, the uh, a, a Jewish group in Sweden and also somebody called Ettlinger, who helped a lot of people, who was a Swedish Jew. Jacob Ettlinger um, was he was a prominent member of the of the Stockholm Jewish community, and he we have um, that family kept binders and binders of documents, um, correspondence between Sweden and Jews throughout Europe, especially in Germany, I believe, and maybe Poland as well, but especially Germany and Sweden. Correspondence of trying to. Um, facilitate german um german jews migrating out out of germany and into sweden or to the united states and so um mr edlinger was um was trying to help my grandmother and if i can move the story forward just a little bit it we it turned out that years later my father was able to discover that in fact my grandmother succeeded in getting documentation um, yes, to permit right. both of her other sons, my father and Wolfie, to join them in Sweden, to, to come to her in Sweden, but, but the papers themselves weren't arranged until 1943 during the bombing of Hamburg, and it turned out that those papers actually never made it to to my father's location. That's one of the many ironies or strange twists of fate in in my father's journey yeah and there are quite a few of those as i remember and how how many years did you spend in the the orphanage carl uh, i think i spent from the age of maybe seven or eight till maybe 14. he was he actually had his bar mitzvah in the orphanage it was actually a very interesting experience in that the orphanage took over schooling of children who lived in the orphanage. In other words, there was quite a effort by the, the Nazis to, to limit schooling of Jewish children. They closed the school and didn't allow ch Jewish children to be educated anymore. They first closed the main school, which is called the Talmud Torah School, and then sent uh, Jewish children to the girls' school, and then closed the girls' school. So there was uh, an, a number of efforts for the, by the Nazis to limit schooling of Jewish school. And uh, I never had uh, an education of high school. My education ended at seventh grade uh, until the war ended and I re uh, restarted my education in Sweden. Those are very important years in a in a child's life, very formative years. And um, the people running the place must have made a very big impression on you. What was your memory of how it was there? And can you also tell us something about your chess expertise, which I think I remember grew out of your time there? Yeah, I think, I think the people tried 
to do the best they could to help us get ed- get some education there. There was a um, a very good teacher called Mr. Hamburger, interesting enough, <laughs> who was a good teacher and tried to teach the children. I remember that that children disappeared somehow. I don't know whether they were sent to concentration camps or somehow disappeared some some other way, but eventually all the children were sent to concentration camp in 1942, and there's a book that lists where everybody was sent. You know, both I and my nephew Ezra, who has also done a lot of research into the those years and, and my father's experiences during the war, you know, these small details of his life in the orphanage, for example, he would, even now, when my father eats a, a soft-boiled egg in the morning, he cuts off the top of the egg to scoop out the little piece of, of white. And even as a child, when I was growing up, he would explain that that every day the the headmaster or or the director of the orphanage would have one egg and he would he would cut off the top of it and he would pass that around to one boy so one boy would get one little bite of of a soft boiled egg as a treat and the other boys would have to wait their turn until the next day and the next day and those kinds of memories, you know, for a child, I'm imagining who is always hungry, and that little treat was so so important and memorable that 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 experience lasted my father the rest of his life, and is now part of my life and part of my nephew's life. Mm-hmm. The the reason the headmaster got an egg every day was that he had been part of World War a soldier in World War One. And people that had World War One got an egg every day, so he uh, used that top of the egg to distribute to children in for breakfast every morning. When we had breakfast, he gave the top of the egg to one boy each morning. So that was an event that we remembered, that I remembered. Mm-hmm. so that we got the top of the egg that Elizabeth just mentioned. Right. I'm also yeah. remembering uh, you would talk about which child washed the pans at night from the soup and that that was always, you know, you got you got to help clean up because that meant you got an extra taste of something. And he worked in the mornings um on a tennis court somewhere nearby yeah. he was a, he was a ball boy who would pick up stray balls at the tennis court so you know these these little details of life that have always been part of my father's stories from his childhood the vividness of of those specifics yeah i i want to make sure those get included too there's a lot of you know sort of the big drama of the holocaust and then within that big drama are these small details from a child's point of view. Well, I actually run away in the morning to make some money by picking up balls and people playing tennis. And that's how I got a little bit of money to buy a few few sweets or whatever. 
did you have to hide that from? Did the orphanage know that you were doing that? Did they give you? I, I'm not sure whether they knew it, that I did it or not. I don't <laughs> remember. But, but did you hear what he said? He might have used the money to buy sweets. He was obsessed with sweets. Right. right. Okay. And there was another story I remember you telling about an uncle, your mother's brother, who when he was leaving to go to America and that you knew they were leaving and he gave you a chocolate bar, which would have been a huge joy. No, that was his his uh, brother or his uh, somebody else. It was not him. It was. It wasn't uh, Natan. It wasn't Natan. It was. and uh, the brother of his wife, I think. I don't know who it Anyway, was. the point was that my father, at that point, obsessed with sweets as he was, couldn't be consoled by the chocolate because he knew what was really happening was, was his family, relatives were leaving him behind and couldn't take, they were going to America but couldn't take him with them. Did you hear from your mother? Did you were you able to receive letters from her at the orphanage during the time you were there? Yes, actually I was able to get a postcard in concentration camp from her in Sweden. Yeah. From to the Red Cross from Israel actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a- so that was also when you asked did he know where his mother was in Sweden? When, when the time came for my father and my uncle, after all the other children had been deported, and my father and, and Wolfie were the, were the last remaining children, they, when they were arrested and told they were going to Buchenwald, they wrote to their mother in Sweden, in Stockholm, and said, you know, we're going to Buchenwald tomorrow. Send us packages there. How is it that you and your brother ended up being the last. How, how is it that, how did that happen? Do you know? Yes, uh, I think it, the reason was that apparently uh, because we, in Germany, you are a citizen of where your father is a citizen of the country. And my father, by that time, even though he originally was a citizen of the uh, uh, Austrian-Hungarian state. At that time, he was a citizen of the Romania, and so he became a Romanian citizen. Apparently, at that time, the Germans had classified us as Romanian citizens, and that's why we were excluded from being sent to Auschwitz, where the other children were sent. And we were subsequently sent, luckily, to Buchenwald, which was a, an interesting change from where the other children were sent. Mm-hmm. And Buchenwald, instead of being a death camp, was a working and camp at that where they work you to do death, mm-hmm. uh, rather than uh sent you to a death camp before we move on to that part of your story i just wanted to ask you what you and your brother thought and what you said to each other as progressively the number of children remaining in the orphanage you know reduced down to nothing except the two of you what did you think what did you think was happening to them well, we didn't really understand it, but 
we actually told the headmaster and the leader of the Jewish community, why can't we join the other children to, to where they are going? And another important point, which I think is how the Germans uh, lied to the uh, people being deported, the leader of Mr. Hamburger, who was a teacher, put a uh, Torah school into the truck and said, I'm going to take a Torah school with us to the new place where the Germans are sending us so that we can restart a new synagogue there. And I remember seeing him putting a Torah school into the truck to the new location. And, uh, but he, the new leader of the Jewish community said, if you don't have to go with the other children, don't go with them. So he knew apparently something that was going on. They were all killed. Yeah. Now, um, before you left the orphanage, um, uh, now this is back in 1943, you also experienced the, the Allied uh, bombing of Hamburg, Operation yes. Gomorrah, which is a terrible twist of fate since this was part of the effort to defeat Hitler and th through which you and your family would have been liberated, yet you became victims of this. What do you remember about that? We lived in a basement in one of the rooms and the people that took care of us and we... Uh, went into a very small room and uh, in a basement and the building caught fire and we ran out of the building when the building uh, was bombed and the building was destroyed and we ran outside of the building and after the, the building was uh, destroyed we found out that the the uh, room that my brother and I stayed was still uh, not destroyed, and we were able to remove a couple of items that belonged to my brother and I. That was the only room that survived the bombing. I've heard you tell that you remember you remember seeing the lines of people waiting for soup in the park after the bombing and that yeah. you really remember the destroyed city and yeah the city was really probably 60 to 80 percent destroyed and people provided food in a park and we i think went to the park also and tried to get some get some food and then the people that took care of us uh, named seinfeld uh, moved to a Jewish hospital and they took us along and that's where we lived until we were deported to concentration camp. So this is a period that's in between living in the orphanage and being deported. In between 43 and 44, right. Mm -hmm. And this couple are important people to mention as well because they were a mixed marriage. A, uh, a Jewish man and a non-Jewish woman 
who somehow were in a special category. They were permitted to work, but for a Jewish hospital, and they they took over caretaking for my father and, and his brother, but they themselves had a daughter that they sent on a kinder transport to England, and their story has a very, very tragic um, outcome because they did both survive the war and they went to England to be reunited with their daughter. She, um, she had forgotten how to speak German and could no longer communicate with them. And she had been adopted by a very loving family that she wanted to stay with. And they decided that they couldn't, they couldn't disrupt her new life and they chose not to not to reclaim her, and um, and then the two of them both died very tragically, one from cancer and the other from suicide. But you went from the orphanage to this couple, and how was it then that you were taken away to Buchenwald? How did that come about? I don't really know. I think uh, actually there's an interesting interlude in that somehow the Swedish group had requested that we get permission to go to Sweden and apparently the German government had issued permission for us before the bombing yes. that we would be allowed to go to Sweden but even because of the bombing we were never informed that we had permission to go to Sweden. I think it was partly they literally weren't locatable. They didn't have a permanent address and, and whatever the government official was that was meant to give those documents didn't know where to find you, right? Right. So we were never informed and the permission was allowed only for six months. And after the six months in 1944 had expired, they decided we apparently didn't want to go to Sweden, and they they uh, decided to send us to concentration camp. And at that point, they managed. They did manage to find you. You said they. Yeah, right. That they came. Called that us. That a police officer came to arrest you, right? Right, right. They arrested us. They sent. They called apparently the hospital and said, "Tomorrow we'll we'll send a police officer to." arrest you and, and take you to Buchenwald. And they literally, like I guess so many Jews who didn't know their fate, they were told to pack a suitcase and they they took, what, a, a, some food and some warm clothes. It was, it was uh, June, but um, June of 1944, right? Right. And you were, you were 14 at this time? I was 15. You were 15. And your brother, how old was he? 13, right. Yeah. And you stayed together with your brother through this time? Yes, we were always together, right, until we arrived in Buchenwald, right. Where does your brother live now, and is he still alive? He lives in Israel. Yeah, he's still alive also, right. Uh, okay. Eli, unfortunately, is no longer alive, the youngest brother. That okay. had... Uh, been on a children's transport to Sweden. He died uh, several years ago. But Wolfie, who now has over over 30 grandchildren, 
is an is an ultra orthodox Jew in in Israel. We can say more about that later, maybe. But my father and Wolfie were always together. So you were going to be arrested, and how did you feel at that time? You must have been terrified of what was going to happen. They actually again lied to us. They said you're going to be arrested, but we'll send you to a and yeah, German yeah, camp, not a concentration camp. And when we arrived in Buchenwald, they said, this is a concentration camp. So we said, we shouldn't be here. And they said, well, you are supposed to be here. And what was your understanding that time of what a concentration camp meant? We didn't know much about it, but we thought it was an internment camp, not a concentration camp. Well, I think just the fact that you wrote that postcard to your mother and you yeah. said so you can send us packages send it, through the Red Cross. We sent it to Mr. Etlinger, yeah. not to my mother, I yeah. think. Yeah. The idea that they would be able to receive packages that, yeah. you know, they thought they would be, they knew they would be refugees of some kind, but yeah. Uh, yeah. And where did you send this postcard from? From, from the from Hamburg, from the uh, hospital. And it wow. did arrive in Sweden, and they responded. What was the journey to Buchenwald like? Well, we, the, the, the policeman arrested us and took us to a train station, and we took a train to Weimar. And in Weimar, the, he put us into a prison until the train, the next train came with other prisoners that were supposed to be sent, I think in a day or two, to Buchenwald. And then they added us to Buchenwald. And you've also told stories about the those prisoners were coming from much farther away from Russia and yeah. the East, and they had been on the train for days. They were starving themselves. and. And here were these two young boys with with suitcases of small suitcases, but maybe with some food, and and you were very frightened, right, by those other prisoners. Yeah, right. And they stole some of our food, and that's uh, was lucky in that we we were put into a room of receiving prisoners during the night, and one of the the prisoners tried to steal my brother's coat and I started yelling and trying to fight and somebody came in and said what's going on here and I said prisoner started ta stealing my brother's coat and food and that turned out to be a man called Irwin Lippmann he was also from Hamburg and he helped us during all the time that we stayed in Buchenwald. That was a very lucky connection because he had been in Buchenwald for a long time and he was very familiar and he kept helping, helping us every time we had a problem. He was a communist who had been sent to Buchenwald in the early days of the camp. I think Buchenwald was one of the earliest camps established yes. and it was... Um, the, the the majority of the prisoners early on were were communists, as was Erwin Lippmann, and I guess he really took pity on these young boys, um, and he made sure that they were placed in the adult barracks in the camp because the the younger children 
who made it to Buchenwald barely survived because there was a lower camp or a little camp that was primarily young children and it was really um, very disease ridden and um, it was very, very difficult to survive in that part of the camp. As difficult as it was in the other part of the camp, it was even worse for the young, very few young children survived. So you ended up in a place called Block 22, right? That's right. That wasn't an adult Jewish uh, Jewish uh, barrack. Both you and Wolfie together? Well, he was, the barracks had two parts. They placed him in one part and I was in the other part. Mm-hmm. Was that the first time you were separated? Yes, but we and weren't really separated. I mean, we no, saw each no. other every day when we were all all counted and we could connect each other every morning and every night. So tell me about what life was like in Block 22. Well, I mean, we had only wooden beds and blankets. It was very difficult to sleep and it was cold. And we had to get up uh, at a certain time and we had to go and stand and be counted every morning and every night and we had to go to work. I was a bricklayer and my brother worked in a factory that manufactured guns. And as you say, Erwin Lippmann had played an important role. I was very sick, and he helped me get out of the hospital. Usually when when he were in the hospital, you were deported to a death camp, and he got me out of that a couple of times. Now, he had set up some sort of resistance movement or group which met in the sewers. There was the last week uh, before liberation. So and yeah, there was there was a fairly well organized underground at Buchenwald among the communists who had been there for years, and Lippmann was part of that. And there were rumors in early April that the Allied army was getting closer, and um, and Dad has you know described in detail what it was like that last that last week. I don't know if you want to tell those stories. But before we go there, uh, basically you were in Buchenwald from June 1944 through the winter. Yes, that must have been a very, very hard experience uh, to to go through that winter. And I was very sick couple of times, as I said, in a hospital, and they were going to send me to a death camp, and Lippmann got me out of that. How did he do that? I don't know. He he just changed the uh, documentation and kept me in Buchenwald. One of the things I have asked my father over the years is how how psychologically he managed to get through that nightmare and what what enabled him to to endure it and he told me that um, every day he thought it was so terrible and so hellish that the next day had to be better Mm. that that was that was how he got through but but there were some exceptional terrible times in addition to your being sick you remember that that there was the time that you were forced to watch 
the hanging of prisoners who had tried to escape and and that that was the time when Wolfie vowed I guess he told you his vow yeah yeah he he said that if he if he survived the uh, concentration camp he would become a very religious person and he did and he ended up having four children but now he had 30 grandchildren mm. of, uh, and many many great-grandchildren already so he really really he kept lived his up promise. to his promise right <laughs> and that's interesting because people there are some people who reacted very differently who asked who really wondered whether there could be a god you know there were some people who asked what sort of god would allow this what was your reaction well i think my reaction is more the latter one i'm wondering how god could allow one and a half million children to be killed in a brutal kind of a way and six million overall Jews be killed. And I'm wondering whether a God could allow to have that happen. So I'm still questioning if there is a God that could allow that to happen. And, and yet you did raise your children in the Orthodox tradition, right? I think the Jewish religion is a very, very educational kind of a way of living. I, so I think the Jewish religion is very helpful to children's lives, but I'm not sure that God is really helping. I think God, in my opinion, God said, Here's what I'm giving you. Now it's up to you to live the best life you can. So I'm still confused. But I think your reaction is, is a very interesting one uh, to me, an original one in, in a way, because Nazism was a very anti-intellectual movement. Uh, and so to embrace orthodoxy from that point of view is to embrace the reverse of what they did, which was to be against uh, education, or at least against an education that uh, was not a, a propaganda. It's a very, I think it's, it's a very good educational system, and it really tells you how to live the best life you can. It's also interesting that I'm just interjecting here again, Julie, because of what you just said, the idea that one of the things that is so outstanding in my view of, of Jewish discourse is the questioning aspect is yes. even though it, to my mind, is very rigid and very rule bound, it does, it does inspire people to think hard and to ask questions and to and to be challenging and and to challenge and so i know that that's one of the things my father always emphasizes when he gives talks now to young people about his experiences he always really encourages them not to follow the german system that allowed a hitler to come to power which is to be so obedient and so yeah. unquestioning that you um that you can be led to do terrible things in the name of being obedient. And and isn't that something you've always said, Dad? Yes, I do. Yes. 
And so, so this is an important discussion we've we've uh, taken earlier in our conversation, uh, and and I'm very glad that we have. It sounds also to me like you must also be um, by your nature quite a positive person because to wake up each day and say the next day has got to be better than the last one in circumstances like block 22 uh, requires a very, very positive outlook. Yes, I, I basically survived because I, I'm a very positive person. I've always been positive and that has got me through to very difficult times in my life. Where do you think it came from? I have no idea. I I just, I think I was very lucky in, in having that kind of an outlook. Julie, that's such an, a difficult question to answer. I've always wondered, you know, was my father just naturally inclined to be so optimistic or was that something he developed in response to his circumstances and... Who modeled that for him? Did anyone model it for him? How how did that become so fundamental in his character? And yeah, it's it's very impressive. I have to say, it's almost almost mystifying. If we continue now to the last week there of April nineteen forty five, to the time when you were, so this was the last period before the liberation of Buchenwald. What happened at that time? What was what did you experience at that time? Well, uh, actually, it turned out to be my 16th birthday. There was an announcement on a loudspeaker in a camp saying all Jews should assemble on the accounting place. And I think that was uh, a sign that they were trying to do bad things for Jews. April 4th, 45, which was my 16th birthday. So I went to Lipman again and I said, this doesn't sound good, what should we do? And he said, I'll try to help you. I'll put you in a sewer system to hide you. Don't go there, don't go up there. And so he put us in a sewer system for a few days and after he decided what to do, and then he put us, uh, added us to a new transport of Russian prisoners that were still coming into the uh, camp. And he gave us new Russian names and and uh, Russian numbers and added us to a new Russian transport, and that's how we then ended up in a new camp, not 22 anymore, but somehow a different number. And I don't even remember the name uh, of that camp and the number that we got. But then the... Do you mean a new camp or a new block? A new block, I'm sorry. A new block. And uh, then the Nazis surrounded each uh, block and were looking for Jews, and I jumped out of a window and went to Lipman again, and I said, my brother's still there, we have to get him out of that. So he came and we took my brother out, and I, th I don't remember exactly where 
Well, I, uh, I, I actually was lucky. I ran, tried to run to the camp. Nobody was allowed to go into the camp or walk around, and I walked into another block, and I found a, an armband that allowed you to run, walk around the camp. And so I was able to go to Lipman, and we, we uh, got my brother out of that block. So I don't know all the details anymore, but anyway, then the Americans liberated us. So that was how we survived the last week in the, in the camp until we were liberated. We were very lucky. I, I sort of feel I've, I've been, my optimism helped me really become very lucky in many ways throughout my life. I somehow felt I was able to survive in many ways, many times, and uh, survived, so. Well, it, it, the stories you tell to my ear so often are a combination of, of luck and also you keeping your wits about you. That's right, yeah. I, I was always trying to find, find new ways in which I could survive. He's, you know, you asked about chess back in the orphanage. Maybe this is a time to talk about what you what you know from chess and how that's influenced your life. Yeah, that's right. My mother taught me how to play chess, and and chess helps helps you think ahead. If I do this, what can I do next? And that is a, a helpful condition in life, in that you think ahead. If I do this, what can I do next? What should I do next? So I always and you think multiple moves ahead, and you think right. about your opponent's moves. That's and right, right, exactly. So that that helps my life. And this was something you were doing in the orphanage before you went to Buchenwald, right? That's right. Well, I think one of the things I'm I'm nudging you to mention is is the kind of life lessons that you got, not just education from from a classroom, but the kind of life education you got. And even in the camp, you told me that there were things you were learning from other prisoners, like the time when you were fighting with another prisoner about who was going to go get the soup, because the person who got to go get the soup was likely to get something extra to eat and yeah. and that you were fighting with one of the boys down on the ground and a, another prisoner pulled you apart and said you don't hit someone when he's down on the ground right, right. Uh -huh. and these were these were the kinds of stories my father would tell me as a way of transmitting lessons that go far beyond <laughs> the kind of lesson that that I might learn in school right if we if we start to move on towards what happened after the liberation um, and transition to your life in Sweden, some months passed and uh, a lot of things happened before you came here, right? Yeah, actually, after liberation, there was a truck that went back to Hamburg. So we joined that. We went on that truck back to Hamburg, and there was already a Jewish group again, and we said, we want to go to Sweden, and they said, okay, in a few days there'll be a, a bus going to 
Denmark and to Sweden. So we'll tell you when to go. So that they sent us to that bus and we went to Denmark. But then we were stuck in Denmark for three months before we could go to Sweden. And then we finally got to Sweden. And then in Denmark, Copenhagen, they said, who are you? And we said, well, we we were born in Germany. And, and they said, okay, then he put, in, put you in, in a German oh. camp. And then I remembered we had a Danish teacher in Hamburg, and I tried to contact him, and he helped us get out of the of the camp, German camp, and helped us get to Sweden. I mean, the great irony, of course, is that there was this misunderstanding that if you were German, you couldn't have been concentration camp survivors. You must be German soldiers, and so they were being placed among prisoners of war and and uh and yet they knew they had to get to Sweden because that's where their mother and brother were so eventually after how long in Denmark 3 months mm-hmm. were you how long did you spend in this german camp no just a couple of weeks until i remembered i had a danish teacher in hamburg who moved back to denmark and he helped us get out of that camp and helped us get to Sweden. And when you eventually managed to get to Sweden, was your mother and brother and your family waiting for you? Or what? how was that? The Jewish community helped us to get together with, with uh, our mother and brother. And they actually helped us get an apartment together. So that's how we got together with my mother and brother. And, and what is your memory of when you saw your mother and brother again? Just very happy to see them again and be yeah. together again. And do you remember when, when you were with them again, what was discussed and not discussed? Did you talk about what you had been through or did you just try to put it behind you? or? What I was trying to remember was that I needed to get more schooling again, and I I tried to get a job, and I got a job, and I went to night school to catch up with my schooling again. And this was in Stockholm? In Stockholm, right. And you, somehow you had, you had your seventh grade diploma... Right. And you tried to persuade the Swedes that this was a gymnasium diploma so that you could start college in Sweden, right? That, right. that right. you didn't want to admit that you had missed all those years of high school, so That's you pretended right. in, a for, in a new language, in a new country, after having been through what he had gone through for the past several years, he was still trying to persuade them that he was prepared to start college in a new language. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and how did they, I mean, you, you had this situation where you presumably mostly had spoken German uh, and were, had been German, but at the same time had been, well, you were robbed of your citizenship, right? Right. Uh, so you weren't German uh, anymore. I mean, what was your citizenship status? I don't remember how that worked out. 
No. Well, you, I, you always used to say to me that that you felt like Germany had renounced you, and that in a way you wanted to renounce them in return, and, right. and that there was a way that being stateless wasn't for you so much as at least you didn't want to be German anymore. You didn't like to think of yourself as German, and the Swedes, of course, were not very fond of Germans, and so. You were trying to erase your German accent, probably, in, in the way that you spoke I don't Swedish. Know. I don't know. What was your experience of Swedes' attitudes toward what had happened? Sweden wanted to be neutral yes. during the Nazi operation. So, fortunately, I picked up Swedish fairly easily, and I, I got a job fairly quickly. So. And what about your brother? Did he also pursue studies and work? No, he went to school, day school. And fairly soon, he wanted to go to Palestine, right? He was he was a Zionist. I mean, my father's extended family, the ones that left yeah. in 1933, went to Palestine primarily because they were Zionists. And mm -hmm. who knows how much they saw the writing yeah. on the wall, but but Wolfie really wanted to go to Palestine. Yeah. Mm. And what about you? Was that ever an option for you? No, not really. I wanted to get an education and I wanted to work, make some money. Mm. And then you met mom. Then I yes. met your mother, right. I met her at a party and I didn't know her name yet, but then I figured it out and I finally met her. He immediately decided he wanted to get engaged and married, so that was very quick. Mm. How old How old were you both at that time? I think I was 22 and she was 21, I think. So how many years were you here in, in Sweden in total after the war? I think about uh, maybe eight or ten years. No, so, it wasn't no, that long. It wasn't that long. You came no. in late 45. Or yeah. some in the fall, maybe November or so, yeah. of nineteen forty-five, and and you were married in nineteen fifty-one. Fifty-one. So, in Israel. In Israel. Okay. Oh, but then I had to go back to Sweden to wait for my American papers. I never had planned to go to America until I met my wife, yeah. and her family wanted to go to America. So I decided, obviously, I'll go with her to America. Well, it wasn't so obvious. The way you tell the story is that, you know, you were thinking about going to Israel. Your right. your brother had moved to Palestine. Uh, yeah. Israel had become a state. Your mother went to Palestine, right, right. Israel. Your extended family was all there. And, and the one thing you did used to say about Sweden was that you were very ambitious, and in Sweden you didn't necessarily feel that you could be as successful as you wanted to be, and that you didn't necessarily feel as accepted as you right. wanted in, to in be. In Sweden, foreigners had a tough time being accepted by Swedish citizens. Right. It wasn't just that you were German, it was that you were not Swedish, right? Right. When you met mom and all her surviving family members were in America... Yeah. She was trying to persuade you to try America. And so right. you made an agreement, right? You made a deal that you would first go to Israel together. Right. And if she, if she liked it there, you would stay. 
But she already had decided she wasn't going to stay there. <laughs> How did she come to Sweden? Her parents had applied for a visa. Her parents had fam family in America already. Well, so back up a little bit. So mom survived the Vilna ghetto with her parents, and mm -hmm. then they managed to, with some jewelry they had they had kept from their being kind of sent into exile from their lives, mm -hmm. they managed to pay a Polish peasant family to hide them until the Russians liberated Poland. Mm -hmm. But Poland remained extremely anti-Semitic even after the Nazis were driven out. And so they sought to migrate to the United States. But in order to get to the United States, they first had to spend time in Sweden, I guess, because the Polish quotas were very low, right? Mm -hmm. And so they were in Sweden. My mother was attending a school for orphaned Jewish children in Stockholm was that right mm -hmm. when you met mm -hmm. and uh and they were awaiting visas to come to America so it was it was sort of a compromise you made to go to Israel first but even though you got married in Israel mom was never happy in Israel because she believed that America was really the land of opportunity and that's where she persuaded you to go she had family in the United States is that right yes Two of her aunts had come to America in the 1920s, so that's where her family wanted to go to. And you also had family in America, right? Uh, yes, I did, right. You had Your uncle was living in California, mm -hmm. right? Right. But one of the craziest stories I remember hearing about my parents coming to America was when they finally got on a ship bound for America as a young married couple with, what did you have, $200 in savings? Right. Mm -hmm. Someone on the ship told them that it wasn't safe for them to keep their own money mm -hmm. and that they had to put it in safekeeping and they never saw that money again. <laughs> right. <laughs> and the other sort of tragic comedic story is that my mother was convinced by her family in the United States that If she went on the television show Queen for a Day, which was a, a TV show in which the contestants competed to tell the most sad, harrowing, tragic life story, and the winner would receive a car and a refrigerator and a television, that my mother was convinced by her relatives that she could win on that show. And so that was part of how she persuaded you to come to America also, right? Right. right. That you would be winners of Queen. She would be a winner of Queen for a day. Does that mean that there were then no family members remaining in Sweden, that everyone essentially left for Israel or America? Yes. Well, yeah. how long did Eli stay? Because he, Eli, the one who yeah, had gone on the kinder transport, he... He's didn't even speak German anymore, right? He only right. spoke Swedish, and he fell in love with a Swedish woman. Yeah, right. And he married a Swedish woman who, actually, she wasn't Jewish. She converted to marry him. And they didn't come to America for quite a long time, right? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. But then once they came, then there was no one left in Sweden except friends, not relatives, right? Right, right. 
But my yeah. mother had family that was in Israel. My father had a lot of family in Israel. And uh, most of my mother's family, though, was in the United States. Well, my mother was an only child, so she had a very small family. And a lot of her extended family were murdered. Yeah. Um, listen, in your uh, in your book, you have a phrase which is shared past retained separately that different family members of your family members, you have the shared past, but you, you retain it, you retain these separately. And I was wondering, Carl, about, you know, when you and your wife met here in Sweden and had, had gone through these very harrowing experiences, did you feel that you had the same way of dealing with that, if you like, common past? Or did you have different attitudes about how to handle that and deal with that? Well, I think we had similar attitude, but not identical, no. We had different experiences, and we didn't. We had some disagreements in a number of areas, but basically, I think we were married for almost 50 years, so there, there was most, we had good agreements in general. I, I think one of the things I can add in here is, you know, because we emphasized earlier in the interview my father's optimism and his tendency to believe in in things getting better, I, you know, I think my mother struggled with that kind of point of view more than my father. She she had a tendency to to worry about the future, I think, more than you and and her her experiences had really traumatized her in a different way, but different experiences, different kind of trauma, but not that anyone used that word trauma in those days. No. But I was always shocked to understand that you and mom didn't really share your experiences verbally with each other, that you didn't right. really talk about the past. You both right. sort of looked toward the future maybe differently, but, but mm -hmm. that agreement was we're in America, we're starting a new life, we're going to have mm -hmm. children, we're going to, you know, get ahead and be successful and get comfortable and have friends. And All right. What year did you come to America? In 1952. Mm. And, and where did you first settle? Was it immediately in Schenectady? No, first we settled in New Jersey. I went to uh, college there, Newark College of Engineering. That's another little ironic piece of the Swedish story that even though you graduated from the institute, the Stockholm Institute of Technology. Yeah. Anyway, my father had this degree, this engineering degree, and he comes to Newark and tries to get a job, and they say, we don't count that degree. You, that's a foreign degree, right? Right. <laughs> so he had to go to Newark College of Engineering to do the degree over again here in America. I guess they gave you some credits. They right? gave me. They gave me credit for about two years, half of time. So I, I only got uh, needed to get two additional years, and then I was hired. That was very lucky again, that I. After two years, I got a bachelor degrees, and I was hired by GE to the research lab. That was really also very good. The the guy that interviewed me uh, had heard that I had I was an 
research lab assistant in Sweden. And he said, okay, you would be good for the GE research lab. So I really liked that. And that was another lucky stroke for me. And while they were in Newark living with my mother's mother, um, my mother was working as a key punch operator and my father was going to school and they were they were kind of, you know, putting an American life together, you know, starting to speak English and um, and then Schenectady chose them and they chose Schenectady. Right. I mean, I wanted to go back to this point you raised about language. Did your did your wife speak German? She learned it from me. <laughs> oh. But she she spoke some German quite she was a language genius. She spoke about six or eight languages. She was amazing. She never actually studied German. She was she learned Yiddish during her time in the ghetto. She had a Yiddish teacher. But she spoke Polish and Russian as a, as a child, then Yiddish, then Swedish, then German sort of magically acquired, then Hebrew, then English coming to America. And uh, and they had this agreement Spanish, yeah. somehow that German was the language of the murderers and they didn't speak it with each other and they didn't want us to speak it. Right. I wanted to come to that. Um, so, Carl, when did you, did you make a conscious decision not to speak German anymore at some point? Or it, it just did it just fade from your life? When I go to Hamburg or to Germany, my German is still fluent. And uh, I didn't make it a conscious decision, but I didn't want my children. Elizabeth has a story about that. I... Uh, I I just uh, didn't want my children to to want to live in Germany. No. Okay. It wasn't some sort of decision that you yourself personally reached that you'd never speak it again. No, I didn't. I in didn't. fact, no. Wolfie and my father still speak in German. That's yeah. their that's their language together always. Yeah. My okay. my brother and I when we talk once a week or once every other week, we always speak in German. Right. This is a good time to cross over into these times, various times when you return to Germany, uh, I believe once in the 70s, then in 1983, 1995, and 2015, different times when you went back. What was it like the first time and what motivated you to want to go back the first time? The first time I was trying to go to Hamburg, and I, I really tried to stay over the weekend, but I felt so badly that I arrived in Hamburg on Friday and I felt so badly I had to leave right away. I could not stay there. My memories were so bad, I had to leave right away. But later on, I could stay longer and gradually my feelings disappeared and especially I was quite pleased the way the younger generation accepted their responsibility and tried to uh, make things better in terms of accepting responsibility for what had happened. 
Well, the the times you went back after that first time in the 70s, because in the 70s, you went because of business, is that correct? Yeah, right, right. Mm. But the subsequent times you returned were with family for, for the express purpose of making visits to different places and specifically to Buchenwald. Yes, although there was another visit that he made just with, well, also with family, but with my mother when Hamburg invited you as a guest of the city, right? That was a time that you and mom went, just the two of you. And so, but you're absolutely right that it was it was a very specific um, kind of reconciliation process. Yeah, I think I think the Germans tried to accept responsibility and show that they felt what had happened uh, was not what they uh, really wanted to continue, and that they uh, really wanted to re- have a recovery, and we appreciated that. When you say the young people are taking responsibility, just to clarify, you don't mean that they're responsible in the sense of perpetration. No, not in the sense of responsibility for for that, but just that they felt that it was it had had really done wrong, and that that they felt that their family members had really. Uh, done something that they would never have done. Mm-hmm. So to differentiate themselves from from yeah. their maybe Nazi or oh, right, exactly. ancestors, even if it was within their own family, they were trying to differentiate from that. That's right. Mm-hmm. So if it would have been possible for you to return this year, because I understand that 2020 was uh, the next year in which a visit might have been might have been possible, would you have gone? Yes, I, I had planned to go. We were all prepared to go. I was going to go, my father, and this time my, my brother and one of his daughters was going to go. So there were going to be four of us and, and we were fully prepared to go, but of course it all, it all was canceled. Right. Was it was it mainly the meetings with young people and school children that that got your feelings to shift? Uh, and what were these feelings that shifted? What was it that changed? I wanted to show them personally what I had experienced. Okay, so that I met somebody who who was still survived the atrocities that we were exposed to. But the thing that I was impressed by are the people uh, who were taking care of us as part of the organization that made the visits possible. You're talking about like the Buchenwald Memorial Committees and yeah, things the committees, like that. Yeah, the committees, right. They really appreciated and understood what we had gone through and we're trying to understand that that was a terrible kind of a behavior by their parents and grandparents. So the question Julie was asking about, what was the feeling in you that you had to get over? The feeling I had to get over was to meet the older people who were still uh, in favor and, and still liked the Nazis, okay? 
and felt the Nazis did the right thing. And there's still people today who, who, who like Nazis. Yes. But those people would not have been around uh, the organization of those services um, and, and things like that. So um, in a way, maybe the contact with the people who want to see change, want to see a coming to grips with the, with the past and a taking of responsibility was, was the, the essential part of it. Right. I was very, very moved uh, when I watched the short video of you placing a white rose on the word Kinder, children, at Buchenwald um, in memory of the 1.5 million children murdered in the Holocaust. What went through your mind when you did that? Well, the tragedy that occurred and what these children, if they had grown up, could have accomplished and also uh, contributed to the world, not just to the Jewish people, but really the, the competences and the education and the contributions they could have made as part of their, their capabilities overall that this is a terrible loss and uh, i just feel terrible over for every one of them that got brutally killed i cannot get over that and i think about it almost every day yes and um, I mean, I, I think it's it's a it's very very important this thought because very often the number of children who perished in this is kind of skipped over. Uh, that the larger number of of total people is usually mentioned, which is of course equally as horrific. But but I think it's important to mention the number of children, and I I think it was it's, it's very moving that you do that. And I wonder whether that kind of emerges out of the fact that really you lost your childhood in a way to that time. Or do you feel that you lost your childhood? Maybe I'm misinterpreting it. Maybe maybe I, I haven't understood this correctly. Um, but that you as somebody who in a way gave up your childhood to that time um, want to stand for those children and to remind people. Yeah, exactly. It's part of it. Why I think about that, because I lost my childhood too, in, in many ways. Uh, but the key is both losing those children, but losing them in such a brutal way, right? I mean, there was such a high level of brutality in which they were killed. I just can't get over that. You can't yeah. understand it, how how people could be so brutal in terms of killing babies and small children and even larger children. It's it's just unbelievable. Do you believe in the idea of evil? And and if you do, what what does it mean to you? What is it? Yeah, I I believe that there are people who are born evil. And I also believe pe people that that really 
want to be evil. I, I, I just can't think of it. It makes me feel very badly. Hmm. You stood in classrooms many times. And what are the most common questions that the children ask you? What are they most curious about? It's hard to tell. They're always different. Can I jump in here? Yeah, go ahead. One yeah. of the things I've noticed um, that often is asked of my father is um, how he was able, for example, to to fall in love and start a family. Like how how could he have such a hopeful outlook on life after after his experiences? And you always have a sweet answer to that question, don't you? When people say, "How did you do it?" Yeah, I guess so. It's uh... he said. Well, I'll say what what I've heard my father say. I mean, I'm his daughter, so this is maybe self serving to say it. But yeah. he says, "Well, I fell in love with a very beautiful, intelligent woman, and I knew we would have smart, attractive children." <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know the kids. The kids seem to understand the gap and the the chasm between the story he's telling and what he lived through and, and the life he was able to create. And I think, I think that's something that kind of fills them with, with wonder and also maybe inspiration, right? No matter how hard your life might feel, that, that there's a possibility. And, and when you were talking about the, the murder of 1.5 million and the, the loss, the immeasurable loss, it's also about that lost potential. And so I think there's something he wants to convey to these young people about their potential. Yeah, and I also feel a responsibility to make up for that. I feel I have to compensate for the loss. What can I do that they would have contributed? It's sort of a burden that I carry with me as well. That's somehow the, the answer I also give. I mean, I, I think to me, the word that, that we, we need to put interject into our conversation is resilience. I, I think what you're giving them is resilience. Uh, right. And um, also um, that the resilience part is that despite what you went through, you retain your optimism and have grasped life and had this wonderful family uh, and, um, and, and hope for the future, um, which sometimes can seem very daunting, I think, particularly today when young people turn on the television or the radio or look into their computer screens and see this very divided and sometimes very unpleasant types of, of inter exchanges going on on the internet. And I also don't want the bad people to win. I want the good people to win. <laughs> right. I wanted to ask you about the idea of never forgetting. We're coming into a, a time when most people alive don't remember the time that you lived through. And even if they, they know about it or they've studied the history, they don't remember in that sense because you can't remember something you didn't live through. They've learned about it. You know, there are new and shocking historical events that are taking over our attention all the time in this constant news cycle. So in all this, with 
you know, fewer and fewer people alive who experience this time and this terrible um, events that you live through. What does never forgetting mean? What should we understand that as? Uh, we who, um, you know, need to go on with without having lived through that. I know that's very difficult. In fact, I was very surprised that as some prominent person said, the story of one person being killed is terrible. And the story of a hundred thousand or a million people killed is a statistic. And that is very difficult to remember, right? A statistic. But to remember the 1.5 million children, what they could have contributed, and not to forget that fact and the, the details of any one of them could have contributed and, and what many, many people in that statistic could have contributed to the world is amazing. And that's what we should never forget. I think you're you're always going back to the the remembering of the children, and I think that is very compelling. I'm not saying that the the adults are are less important, but somehow there's something about these children that never got to live out their full lives that really draws us to this story and makes us focus on it. I, I often ask myself what never forgetting means since I was born in 1967. So I, I don't have a personal experience of that time. At the same time, I want to try to fulfill this idea of never forgetting, but I'm wondering what the best way to do that is. Uh, you're right. It's very difficult, especially if People like myself are no longer around, right? Mm, right. Well, one way is by having recorded conversations like this, I guess, yeah. and having and having people like me take it on as as my yeah. life mission as well. And yeah, it's always going to be, as you say, another interpretation and another step removed from the the first hand witnessing and the first hand experience. But it is. It is a kind of, as we were saying before, a taking of responsibility that is, that is part burden and part blessing. Mm. Yeah, right, and, and this also sorry, what go Ezra ahead. does. I think he he talks to groups of people and ma brings it alive to them. All Their right, grandson. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. This is a this is a, a very good way to get into a, another question, Liz. Uh, the way you interjected there is a good way to get into a another question to Carl, which is, how do you see the way that your different family members, um, Elizabeth, um, Ezra, have taken on the subject of remembrance in your story? How do you react when you see Elizabeth's book, uh, or you see Ezra presenting your story? I'm very proud of them. They they really give me hope that the never forgetting is is coming to life through through the way they see it and through the way they see their responsibility. And I'm hoping that they will continue doing that 
and finding other people that will really recognize the, what they are doing and maybe accepting it and taking it on, learning from them and doing it also. So uh, I, I see that as an amazing activity that they have accepted and they may really find other people that will continue doing it and following them. And the next, and an additional uh, responsibility. So, uh, as I said, I feel very blessed that they are doing it. Elizabeth's book certainly uh, doing it in a way that hopefully it will continue uh, doing it because the books are, are so helpful and not only talking about that but also about the the quality of what she's doing and the the helpfulness in the way she's explaining not only that part but making it broadly available to people that like to read her books she's a very talented person i wanted to ask the two of you whether there are things about uh, the approach to to handling your family past that you don't agree on uh, or areas where you have differences? I don't know. Do well, we? I think one thing that has evolved over time, um, and I, I think maybe that was what my father was just getting at a moment ago, the idea that that it's possible to talk about the Holocaust alongside other genocides and atrocities and, and histories of collective trauma that that don't diminish the uniqueness of the Holocaust, but that help illuminate the shared human experience of, of suffering and, and resiliency. And that I think at first my father was concerned that if I, if I talked about the Holocaust by itself, that that was the best way to honor it, but that, that there was some kind of threat or danger of talking about it in any other way. And and I think over time, my father has come to appreciate and understand that I, that I absolutely honor the uniqueness of the Holocaust and always will, and that I can I can discuss echoes and and interconnections with other human history in contemporary examples as well. And and that I think that has been something we had to talk about a lot and 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 understand each other. But I think my father understands now why I do that, and I think he respects it. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I think we don't have really any questions about it anymore that uh, could cause complications in our views the way we look at it. And what about the youngest generation in your family? What's... What is their response, and what do you hear from them in your own family? I, I'm not sure. I don't think they're old enough to really appreciate yeah. and understand the, the sophistication of what it takes to really understand what, what happened in the Holocaust, and what happened in some of these atrocities that also happens in other 
countries. I mean, these are just terrible, terrible things. I think one one possible answer to that as well is, for example, Marushka, my brother's daughter, who was going to accompany us in April for the 75th anniversary of liberation, mm-hmm. she has never yet been to Europe at all. And so some of some of their growth and education is also to to begin to understand where their grandparents came from, like the cultures that they left behind or the the language and the landscape that they left behind. And I know for me, going to Europe as a young person was also about, for example, when I first went to Sweden, and I've been to Sweden five times, I kept on wanting to go back. There was some part of me that kept on trying to imagine who I might have been had my parents stayed in Sweden, you know, or what if they stayed in Israel, or what if my father had never left Germany and my mother had never met him, and, you know, so there's a lot of sort of questions that you can ask about your own identity by exploring the history of your parents and grandparents, and so I think some of his grandchildren still have yet to do that. There, There's still discoveries they have yet to make about themselves and how their own lives are shaped by where their ancestors came from and what they went through. Right. Well, we've been talking for a long time, and I feel very privileged to have been able to listen to you both today. I wanted to thank you from my seat here in Drottningholm in Sweden, Carl and Elizabeth Rossner, for taking the time. And um, let us hope that, that we'll we'll all be able to continue to pursue our, our family legacies and, and to, to discover and to, to remember. Julie, I, I want to thank you from my heart to yours for, for this beautiful form of service that you're performing and, and for all of your sensitivity and thoughtfulness. Okay, thank, thank, you. thank, thank you very you. much. You've been listening to The Creative Conversations, a production of Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at storiesforsociety.com.